With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Good evening. Welcome to Researcher 135's Community Call, Daily Talk, with your host, Rich Bernardo. This is the Saturday, July 16th, 2016 edition. I want to give a shout-out to all of our callers last week on the Dallas Police Ambush show. That was one of our best shows, which we were dealing with the tragic loss of the five policemen last week in Dallas, Texas. Tonight, our guest is going to be Dan Patrick, e-commerce professor of Tampa, Florida, who has in his possession original photographs taken the evening that Marilyn Monroe sang Happy Birthday, Mr. President, to to JFK. Uh, Victor Hallou is the original photographer who took those photographs that night. He was present there when this uh, all took place. These original photographs uh, are for sale. Uh, they are part of a, a package that Dan Patrick has put together. They are initialed uh, by the original photographer, and they are numbered and stamped with the uh, photographer's uh, logo uh, on back. And Dan will be telling us a lot about Victor Hillu tonight, uh, who was uh, on Broadway uh, and that is how, in fact, he had access that night to uh, the party, to the festivities in which uh, Marilyn Monroe was present and sang. Uh, there is a YouTube video that I created about this uh, called Marilyn Monroe. It's there on the Rich Bernardo channel on YouTube. There will be another uh, YouTube video about this as well. That will be discussing uh, details concerning these original photographs of Marilyn Monroe this evening. And he will be telling us stories and anecdotes about the uh, photographer who uh, who took these stunning original photographs from a very historic uh, moment to uh, uh, JFK's birthday in May of 1962 at Madison Square Garden. There were many other celebrities present. Uh, and in fact, some of the... Uh, Photographs taken that night uh, also show, for example, uh, Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor, Barbara Streisand, Jack Benny was there. A number of uh, of celebrities of great stature and great popularity and high high caliber at that time uh, were present that evening. Uh, while uh, we're waiting for our guest Dan Patrick to arrive, <clears throat> send it. Shout out to uh, next week's guest, Courtney Starkey. Uh, she is a return guest. She has been on a couple of times before. She is a past life regressionist who operates both uh, in Hawaii from time to time as well as here uh, in the United States uh, continental uh, United States. 
and she will be talking to us uh, next week again about past life regression. So we're looking forward to having Courtney Starkey back. Uh, the previous shows that she were was on uh, here on Daily Talk are archived here in the Researcher 135 Community Call Archive. Uh, where any show that's ever been on here, you can listen and you can download and you can share. And at this moment, I want to give a shout-out to Dan Patrick in uh, Tampa, Florida. Good evening, Dan. Hi, Rich. Good to uh, hear your voice again. Uh, It's been a little while, but not that long. A few weeks. Good to hear you also, Dan. I know you have something very exciting to bring to us tonight uh, about Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, you know... um, I showed you some images taken at uh, John F. Kennedy's birthday party in Madison Square Garden in uh, 1962, May 9th. Yeah, and um, what happened is, uh, gosh, I want to say about five years ago, there was a small thrift store that opened up in the area, and I noticed that there was a a book uh, about the event and some prints of Mm -hmm. Marilyn Monroe and... uh, and, and a couple of other stars that had been in attendance at Madison Square Garden that night. And I became very interested, and I asked the lady at the thrift store what this was all about, and she said that the photographer that had taken the photographs was a, a neighbor in the, uh, in the area, and he had put them in there on commission along with the book. Uh, and this turned out to be one Mr. Victor Helu who uh, was a, at the time, he was a Broadway chorus boy and understudy uh, for Broadway Productions. And uh, what he's also had a, a small photography business. He was a relatively young man. Uh, he's 83, 84 right now. And he lives about three minute, three miles from where I'm talking to you right now in a condominium here in St. Pete Beach, Florida, St. Petersburg, Florida area. Um, mm-hmm. What the woman did is she gave me Victor's card, and I phoned him, and I, I said I was very interested in the prints that he that were on display, but those were like cheap photocopies that I guess Victor thought. You have to realize Victor's very old and he has some kind of some different ideas than a lot of us about business and how things were were going and what they might be worth. At the time, he was very unaware of what he had might just be worth. And I thought that this is something very, very valuable, you know, and, and, you know, almost un- inconceivable that somebody had been at back, not only, you know, at the re- he, had, he was at the rehearsal and backstage and just about everywhere that Miss Monroe had been uh, during the event, and he had free license to take photographs uh, of the entire event. And I met with him in front of the thrift store, and I told him I really wasn't interested in the the photocopies that were on display at the thrift store, but I was interested in original photographs. And and at that, that time, we struck up uh, somewhat of a friendship, and he invited me to his condominium to view, you know, some photographs and other items he had for sale, which was included the book. It was a self-published book. I, I think you know what the title you, you You did some research. I can't remember what the title of, of his book was. I believe it's called Happy Birthday, Mr. President, or something along those lines. Uh, yeah. I, it's in that YouTube video I made, so I can definitely go back and research it. But I believe the title is something similar to that, yes. And, and the book was was very self-published. It wasn't very professionally done. It, you know, 
it, it looked like he had photocopied several pages of different texts and photographs and cut and pasted them in himself and and he found somebody to bind them and I think he had a few hundred made or maybe a hundred made at one time and he thought he was going to make a bunch of money on these things selling them I think for like fifty dollars a pop but I was interested in the original images more than anything and uh-huh. um, when he met me and his condominium in the um, uh, the hallway there, he brought down a whole basket full of photographs of Marilyn Monroe, other stars. He had uh, studio cards of uh, actresses like Hedy Lamarr, Greta Garbo, uh, uh, Veronica Lake. I bought some of those from him. Uh, I bought uh, seven images of uh, Marilyn Monroe, and, uh, and it was just, like, fascinating. Uh, he had more uh, but he didn't have them uh, published, uh, and uh, you know he, he hadn't. He had some of his own that he wasn't selling, but he was able to like uh, show them to me, like uh, uh, Marilyn Monroe and Jack Benny uh, at the rehearsal. And that that's what's really interesting about Victor's uh, career was that he was like uh, a singer, and he sang, you know, in the chorus for Broadway productions. Also was uh, an understudy for The King and I, and the man from from La Mancha, I think. And the guy still sings like a... a, He has the voice of a 24, 25-year-old man, and he doesn't forget the word. He has a hard time finding his way around the neighborhood in a car, but he he doesn't miss a single lyric to any Broadway show tune that he's he's familiar with. And he sings very well. Excuse me? Very amazing. That's wonderful. Yeah, and he's a great guy, and at one time, uh, I have a friend, um, Miss uh, Angie Fox, and she she is a big, big fan of uh, Marilyn Monroe's, and she was so uh, taken with the images. I gave her one for her birthday uh, several years ago, and she was so taken with this that she just had to meet Victor. And she met Victor, and she was very impressed with him, and she has some connections in uh, mass media, and she asked a movie producer to meet with him, and we all had lunch. And the, we, you know, we discussed Victor's career. And then we actually went back to his condominium and went upstairs to his condo. And, um, you know, from the, the, that time era, it looks like he, he had come across just about everybody that was anybody at the time, like Barbara Streisand, Elizabeth Taylor, and uh, Richard Burton, uh, Eddie Fisher, you know, of course, these are names that go along with people that were, like, very famous, like, very, very long time ago, like 60, 60, 70 years ago, but but they're the equivalent, I guess, of, you know, some of the people you see in People magazine these days, you know, on the cover. Right, right, uh uh-huh. Yeah, they were, you know, extremely, they define the era, you know, they define what a star was, and, uh, Victor had come across, he either knew these people or had photographed them. He, he had photographed Robert Streisand on her 21st birthday. I was, it was just absolutely amazed at his apartment, which is filled with photographs of his career in Broadway. And uh, he, he's a, uh, you know, had an incredible story. Um, he sold me the seven images. I had him initial and number them, you know, for uh, absolute, you know, clarification that these came from the photographer. Uh, these are the last images that are ever going to be published from the negative. Uh, his family and his estate and his estate lawyer have made him lock them up as far as he's been very evasive about their plans for them. 
I guess he's been told to do so by uh, his family's a lawyer. Uh, I, I believe that he's got some nephews that are looking to cash in uh, once he's deceased, uh, you know, on, on, the, on the treasure that he's got of uh, photographs and negatives. And he's been told to be quiet. But he sold the images to me before he had that, that, that uh, limitation put on him. And uh-huh. uh, I'm very lucky to have gotten them. And uh, he's, got, he's got a lot of other stuff. And, and I bought some of those comp cards from the wartime comp cards of Greta Garbo and stuff like that from him. And, you know, I, I really treasure the images. I really, you know, I've got one framed here that I don't intend to sell. But the other ones I'm looking to maybe sell. But, uh, you know, the, the important thing to me in and, and, and and image collecting, and there is, you know, such a thing as people that collect rare images. And I yeah. was told a long time ago, uh, by a, a man, I actually had some Led Zeppelin images for sale at a gallery down the street here that I had come across, and is to have these things numbered and initialed by the actual photographer, which makes them more marketable. And that's yes, what absolutely right. And so, what's really important about the images is that that Victor did take the time to come down and initial and number them, and they are the very last ones that will ever be sold to the public. Now, he's had you know attempts to like mass market them before, and they, they never really had the right marketing ploy, and and it, uh, it it sort of failed for him. And the book, like like I said, it's a, a published book, but it's a self-published book, and it's very uh, non-professional. And I think there's plan. I think he has plans to uh, go to a more professional publisher and have a book uh, published about the event with his images in it. And if you were to uh, give us a ballpark estimate as to the approximate value of these images, uh, where would you put that figure? Well, you know, it, it's kind of a difficult thing because you know, uh, Marilyn Monroe collectors usually have you know a serious Marilyn Monroe collector has to have everything, you know, that they could possibly get their hands on. So in some respects, it would be priceless to them. To the general market, I'd say somewhere between $1,000 to $2,000 an image. Uh, you know, the uh, the ones that come directly from his darkroom, uh, I'd say, you know, and I think you've seen the, the, the square ones, the, the, the smaller of the two, uh, yeah. actually, actually were probably developed by him in his own darkroom in 1962. Uh-huh. There's a, a co- another set of 8x10s that look like they were developed later on in the 20th century. And I don't know where and when he had those developed. But the uh, having been an image collector myself, I can obviously see this, the uh, what they call the uh, negative smudge in the corners, uh, four corners of the smaller images. And if uh-huh. you've ever seen a, you know, a, a, a very valuable photo- photograph, uh, what image collectors like to see is they like to see the evidence that that the that the the the, uh, the negative's been taken out of the the that uh, special solution they use and put on the paper, and that usually mm-hmm. leaves a little bit of a smudge in the corners. Or you can even you know if you if, if people that you know in this day and age are probably not real familiar with uh, uh, because of digital photography aren't familiar with the. Uh, the photograph process of development of film. I mean, I know it's kind of a, a genre that's gone out the door, you know, in, in, in the last 20 years. But mm-hmm. uh, you, you probably can remember the old Kodak film, right? With the, and and the, you get a roll of film, and it has those little little holes on each side mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for the camera to loop around, right? And a lot of your more 
you know, a lot of image collectors like like to even see that. They like to see that the the the, the negative, the, even the outside of the negative, put on the paper. And I learned this from the gentleman that um, was marketing my Led Zeppelin photographs down the road at his rock and roll uh, museum here in St. Petersburg. Told me, you know, that this is these are some of the things that make an image more marketable. You know, it's definitely having the photographer side them and, and what number them is the one thing. Uh, evidence that they came right from the negative is another thing. You know, um, and these are th- these these increase the value of the image you know, at, at any given time. Fantastic, Dan. Uh, this is a true treasure. This is a very rare find, and from a very historic night, President Kennedy's birthday, the uh, evening when Marilyn Monroe sang "Happy Birthday, Mr. President." Uh, I understand, Victor. Uh, Hilo uh, shared uh, some anecdotes, some stories with you. Could you share with our listeners some of the uh, anecdotes that he, Victor shared with you? Oh, yeah. This is a pretty good story about when she came into rehearsal the first day, Jack Benny. And, you know, unfortunately, probably a lot of people don't know who. I'm just barely old enough to, to remember Jack Benny. Uh, uh-huh. Jack, Jack Benny uh, mentioned to Miss Monroe that he said, uh, it looks like you've been putting on a little bit of weight. And Marilyn Monroe said, not anywhere but my breast. You want to see? And, he, she, and according to Victor, she started to, like, act like she was going to remove her top. And that really, like, stunned Jack Benny. And he said, no, 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 not here, not right now. And, uh, you know, so to tease him a little bit. He also told me that the gown was absolutely see-through and almost scandalous for us in 1962 to have worn a gown that was absolutely showed her nude flesh through it. It was absolutely stunning and and nearly scandalous. And if you've ever heard uh, a recording on YouTube, you know, it's all over YouTube, of her singing it in that vampy voice, happy birthday, Mr. President. You yes. know, you can imagine the shock of the public with this, this see-through gown and this woman singing, you know, in this sexy, alluring voice to the President of the United States. Uh, one of the most more significant things is that, that Jackie Onassis Kennedy did not attend the event because uh, at the time, JFK and, and Marilyn were having an affair. And um, mm-hmm. she was so she was so uh, upset by the fact that Marilyn Monroe was going to be singing at the birthday party that she she declined to uh, to attend. So uh, that was one significant thing that, that it, it, you know history history shows that she was not she did not accompany JFK to that party. Uh, some of the more other famous people that that were you'll see in the images are Peter Lawford. Who was instrumental, in, and he's uh, he was uh, married to a, a Kennedy family. He was an in-law of John Kennedy's, and he was instrumental in, in introducing Marilyn to the Kennedy brothers, Robert and, and uh, John. And uh, he's in the images. Uh, there was a man. There's a man named Mr. Blackwell that appears in the images, and he at one time used to do the ten best and ten worst dressed women in Hollywood list every year. Uh, I don't know if anybody out there is old enough to remember Mr. Blackwell and and, and whether he mattered or not, but yeah, he is definitely appears in a couple of the images that I have, along with uh, along with Peter Lawford, and I do have one uh, of the day of the, uh, the rehearsal with Jack Benny. There are other people like uh, I think Jimmy Durante is definitely there, um, and he can't miss that big nose and hat, and and several other stars attended the uh, the event. It was, it was like a 
one of the more star-studded galas uh, uh, ever held at Madison Square Garden at the time. And so Victor was privileged to all this, you know, backstage, you know, catenary and stuff. And, uh, you know, he had a good time with it, obviously. And, uh, years, you know, as the years went by, he, 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 he began to see the significance of what had happened and what, what he really had been able to participate in. You know, the irony of, of this, Dan, is that that was President Kennedy's birthday in, in May of 62, and within just a few months, August of 62, Maryland uh, would be would be found dead. And there has been some question from time to time. Uh, there's books and documentaries out that call into question whether it was, in fact, an accidental death or a suicide or if there was some sort of a cover-up. But there's, there's a number of, of theories. Of, there was, in fact, supposedly a diary which uh, Marilyn kept that came up missing, and there may even be some indication that Peter Lawford was uh, there near Marilyn's uh, uh, place uh, not too long before she uh, passed away. You may be able to weigh in on some of this, Dan. Could you tell us a little about all of this? Yeah, I, I looked I, I looked that up, and, you know, there's a lot of confusion surrounding uh, the whole thing. Peter Lawford, uh, I think he was aware that she was ill that night. But you have to realize that, that Marilyn Monroe had been suffering for, for several weeks, if not months, with mental illness. Uh, she had been committed at one time to an institution and put in with some very, very ill people that, that, that she didn't, she really wasn't that ill that she had to be put in with the raging psychotics. They made a mistake and Joe DiMaggio, her, her former husband had went and rescued her and had her put in a, an award that was for people that were, uh, borderline, you know, they weren't quite as bad off. And she, she was suffering very bad. She had, a, she was under contract to finish a picture, uh, I think it was called The Misfits, if I'm not mistaken. There was another picture I think she was involved in, too. And the, and the studio eventually had to sue her for non-breach of contract because she just couldn't get her act together uh, long enough to film uh, a full-length film at that time. She suffering severe depression, and she was taking barbiturates as prescribed uh, for a long time. And one of the more significant things I read is that that the, the suicide, they're calling it the, the, the two different schools of thought that it, accidental suicide or suicide. Uh, it, obviously, she was well versed in the taking of the barbiturates she was uh, prescribed. She she knew how much to take and at what time. And the the in the autopsy that was originally done, they found a, an exorbitant amount of uh, barbiturates in her stomach, which implied that she had taken all handful in a gulp. So so it seems like it was an intentional suicide, that she had been extremely depressed. And there have been a lot of people over the years, uh, you know, with conspiracy theories, one of them being that Robert Kennedy also had an affair with Marilyn. And she she was known to call, call uh, the Kennedys and threaten them. Uh, she called Jackie Kennedy and threatened her, and she told Marilyn that she could have the no-good SOB, basically. <laughs> and uh, she supposedly called Robert Kennedy and threatened to expose the affairs with both him and his brother. And that led to a lot of uh, uh, thinking that uh, possibly that Robert Kennedy had her assassinated on purpose to keep her quiet. Uh, but there's been a lot of, a lot of proof to the, to the contrary over the decades. And, of course, you know, 
America has fascination with with certain people uh, that doesn't seem to die with time. You know, Marilyn Monroe being one of the more iconic. You know, we have Elvis Presley. Uh, you know, John Kennedy himself is an icon that that doesn't ever seem to to the, the American public never seems to lose interest in the Kennedy story, you know, or in the Monroe story. And uh, you know, people are fascinated with these people for some reason. And uh, after doing a lot of research. Uh, you know, th- some people even wanted just to go so far as saying that Jimmy Hoffa did this, uh, the uh, the leader of the Teamsters, to to get revenge on on Robert Kennedy, who was one of his mortal enemies at the time. You know, and after doing a lot of research, it just seems like it was it was what it was. It was a, I think it was a suicide. I think that her problems were so grave, and her ability to, to deal with them, uh, you know, and cope with them were so. You know, she 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 didn't have those those abilities, and I think that she just she just decided to pull the plug on her own life for the use of the barbiturates. Dan, we have a caller from Central Illinois. Good evening, Central Illinois. Hi, Rich. If you have a comment or a question, feel free to weigh in. We are discussing yeah. the Marilyn Monroe. Go All ahead. right. Well, I just I just heard uh, his last comment about uh, he thought that it was a suicide. And uh, I always kind of thought, you know, it was like a suicide, but maybe an accidental overdose also, because she didn't take so many pills. And, and yeah, that, that, that's, that's part of the theory, too, that it was either accidental, but what, like I said, one of the more significant findings of the autopsy was that, that she took, it was obvious from the amount of barbiturates in her stomach that she had just taken a large handful, and that she had been prescribed these for several months if not years, and she knew not to take that many at a time. So yeah. the likelihood that it was accidental, uh, it's there. I'm not going to say it's not, but it seems like it, it probably it was probably intentional. When when somebody takes a handful of, of pills, it's a lot different than them taking them prescribed or two or three, or she could have been intoxicated and just wasn't aware. Well, if I, I recall correctly, of course, my rituals do not mix well with alcohol, and there was some question as to perhaps she had been drinking heavily also as well. You know, that, that, that's funny you bring that up because uh, all the research I did doesn't mention alcohol in her system at all. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, there's, some, there's some really wild things going on. There. They, they said that she, she, she used to have enemas with these barbiturates uh, administered by a nurse that practitioner that lived on the property and and a lot of uh, really wacky things have been written in biographies uh, about her and I just I've come to the conclusion from what I read that that the woman probably just was so severely racked emotionally mentally and so forth that she you know she'd been through so much and you know and I feel like you know as a, as America as a culture we we kind of put people they're just really the bottom line. She's just a human being. She was just mm-hmm. a woman, and and we made her. America made her, and the world made her into something completely different. And mm-hmm. that's got to be hard for I mean anyone to handle. You know, this idolization of a human being is not a natural thing. And and the drugs, the drugs get a lot of them. You know, Heath Ledger and. Uh, you know, the different ones like that. And, uh, you know, sometimes I think, you know, they, they get used to taking so many pills that they, they lose track. I think it's probably fairly easy 
you know, in a barbiturate state to lose track of how many pills you've taken. They well, said that she could have taken, you know, it was normal for her to take, you know, 20 or 25 pills. I don't know what they were, some type of barbiturates, you know, throughout, you know, the daytime. And then, of course, the ones to help her sleep, too. So, you know, you can see where, you know, if you were if you were loaded to begin with and you just forget. Yeah, and, and that's right. You know, barbiturates, the, the medicine of that nature diminishes the, the, the memory. And it, it very well, that theory could very well be true, like, especially in the case of Heath Ledger. You know, Xanax is very known, you know, to, to uh, create dementia and loss of memory. And it's very it's very possible that these people could just, just have forgotten, you know, in the course of all their busy life and, and all their, uh, you know, rage and upset, uh, you know, and upheaval in their life that how, how many pills they've actually taken. You know, I mean, you know, going through one one hour after another with a lot of emotional distress, and they're taking these medications to stop that feeling. And after a yeah. while, it probably and, and very I easily could forget. Anything I've ever heard or read about her, she was apparently abused, if not once, more than once, maybe several times. In I think it was a total of a, like, about nine foster homes she lived in, and you know that's got to unbalance you a little bit too. Yeah, she was. Her mother uh, was a party girl, and her mother uh, didn't really want felt that Marilyn was, uh, as a little girl, was a, a hindrance to her lifestyle. And as a result, she was sent to live with a lot of different relatives and foster homes. You're absolutely correct, and it is documented that she was sexually molested at, at, at about age, starting at about the age of ten, eleven, or twelve, somewhere around there, by by possibly. Uh, uh, friends of, of, of family that, that were in charge of her at the time. Her mother was in and out of her life her whole her whole life. Her mother didn't participate in her childhood totally. She she was known to give her away when and, she... And her mother was eventually institutionalized, wasn't she? I believe so, yeah. You know, there, there, was, there was mental health issues in the family, you know, and, and uh, Marilyn did suffer from mental health issues as well as her addiction to the barbiturates. So there's no doubt that she was definitely... And, you know, it's hard telling, you know, at the beginning of her her career, we all know about the casting couch and, you know, know, being around the big executives back during that time and, of course, in this time too. You know, they're finding out that, uh, you know, that, that practice is still happening. And, you know, that, that, that can kind of mess with you too, I would think. You know, I well, think you become, after a while, you kind of think of yourself as, you know, not really worth too much. Yeah, it beats down on the self-esteem. It's interesting you bring that up because it's documented that, that she was very close to Frank Sinatra. And Frank Sinatra actually really, really acted as like a, a quasi-pimp for her. And he was arranged for her to have uh, sexual liaisons with, with a lot of powerful and wealthy men, uh, some of them in the mafia, some of them outside of the mafia, and, and and eventually John F. Kennedy. You know, he was one of the people that was instrumental in keeping them. You know, giving them a place to have rendezvous. From what I understand, uh, you know, Sinatra was a big Kennedy fan. Uh, Sinatra wanted a Catholic to be in the White House more than anything. Him being him himself being an Italian Catholic, mm-hmm. and, and uh, he he campaigned for him all over the place, and they just dumped him. Yeah, they, they dumped, dumped him. They, they, you know, he, he delivered uh, the 
the Chicago vote through the mafia, and then the, the Kennedy betrayed, betrayed the mob. So they were the brothers were, were very much on thin ice throughout John's entire career. He he had a lot of enemies. He made a lot of enemies really quick. As a matter of fact, uh, and LBJ being one of the bigger enemies that that was right next to him the whole time. And uh, you know, but Maryland was passed around basically by Frank Sinatra, yeah. and he used his yeah. influence on her and to you know get her to you know have. Rendezvous with various powerful men. Well, I uh, think when she was still uh, just a starlet, I think she became involved with that older man. I believe he was his name was Johnny Hyde. Uh, it seems like he was a testing agent or something like that, and he died. Uh, I think you know, not long after they had been together, and I think that messed her up quite a bit too, because I think she really, really cared for him. Well. But, I, I, yeah, the one person that she was probably closest to throughout her life was another photographer named Milton Green. And Milton Green, it, it, Milton Green, I've owned some Milton Green prints off and on over the years. I've sold them, but uh, they were reproductions. But Milton Green took a lot of early photographs of her when she first started modeling, and he became a confidant and lover. And he was in and out of her life almost all the way up to the day she died. Uh, to one extent or another. Uh, he was one of the more powerful influences in her life. And Milton Green prints are fantastic. I, I know I own another one here somewhere of her in the ballerina costume. But, uh, yeah, yeah, he was very instrumental, and, and she, she she went through a lot of characters, you know. Is he the one that took the, the famous photo, you know, where she stretched out on, I think it's red velvet or something? Did, did he take those photos? No, he didn't take, no, he didn't take the... the, the, no. the uh, no. That's the uh, Playboy uh, centerfold uh, photo, if I recall correctly. Yeah, it's red, it's red, and I believe there may have been a calendar along about that time, too. I think the first issue of Playboy uh, featured Marilyn. Yeah, that was like in 1954, I believe, or maybe even 53. Yeah, I forgot. There, there was a, a famous photographer in Florida named Bunny. Bunny, oh, God, I can't remember her last name. And it was a woman, and she took a lot of the new, early news for Playboy, and, and she had Marilyn's trust. And from what I, I've read, it, Mar Marilyn felt very empowered being in the nude and being photographed in the nude. It, it gave her, her her identity and her, her her what she felt was her power in this world, was her sexual you know uh, desirability, and she relished that. And she did. She was not shy. She was uh, an exhibitionist. And, well, it got her attention. Right, and that's what she loved. You know, this was something that kept her going. Was her but I, met, I bet she was really something on, on the set, though. Everything I've ever heard, she was very, very difficult to work with. Yeah. Because, she, you know, she was either drunk or stoned or whatever you want to say, you know, and would be two to three hours late to show up on set and... You know that would be that would be difficult to deal with. Yeah, uh, she actually uh, towards the end she became more and more difficult. She she was uh, like I said she was under contract to finish a film uh, when she died. And and uh, one of the things it's pretty uh, uh, interesting is that Dean Martin was also cast in the film. And when they found out that Marilyn just wasn't capable of, of you know, completing the filming, uh, they brought in another actress, and Dean Martin said he would not, he wouldn't go on with the movie if Marilyn Monroe didn't do it. So they, 
they, they ended up suing him, too. So both him and Marilyn Monroe were sued for breach of contract with the final movie that she was supposed to. Was that to. Something's Gotta Give? Yeah, I believe that's what it was called. That's right. And uh, both of them were cast, and, and neither one of them finished the film. Uh, they did bring a substitute for Miss Monroe, but uh, uh, Dean Martin said he wouldn't do it without her. Uh, what was the one that she started? Was that was her last movie the one she starred uh, with? With uh, oh, the one that was in Gone with the Wind, Clark Gable. Was that her last movie? Was, that was, that was or was that his last movie? It was The Misfits. That, that's called The Misfits. The Misfits. Yeah. Yes, yeah. The Misfits. I think that was his movie. last movie. Yeah. yeah well, so he died shortly thereafter. That yeah, that was in 1960. Yeah, she finished that movie. There was one called The Seven Year Age Two, as I recall. Yeah, she finished that movie too. She did. That was the one with the uh, the famous, uh, you know, uh, uh, the great blowing her blowing her skirt off. Yeah. Yeah. That that happened in that movie. Yeah, that's when she was with DiMaggio, and DiMaggio wasn't pleased at all. No, he wasn't. Actually, Joe DiMaggio was very jealous and very possessive of Marilyn Monroe, like many other men. Uh, I think she was she married an author, Matt. What was his name? Uh, the, the writer. Uh, gosh, I, you know, sometimes I. Yeah, know I know who you're talking Miller. about. Arthur Miller. Yeah. Arthur yeah. Miller, and he really hated the uh, publicity and the, the sex symbol stuff. Uh, it wasn't his bag. Uh, he didn't like Hollywood. He, he didn't like uh, the hangers on. He didn't like the whole scene. And he, he bailed. He 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 divorced her. Uh, you know. Um, and yeah, she she did complete the seven years in Misfits. Uh, from what I understand, Clark Gable had a hard time with her. He wasn't happy with her. They fought. Yeah, some people death. claim she was the cause of his death, but you know. He, <laughs> You know that I I've think he dropped dead of a heart attack, so you know that's hard to prove. I would say. Yeah, uh, from what I understand, that that Clark Gable was a very nice man, and he had a very difficult. She was very. She was starting to turn very difficult at that point. Uh, you know, and you have to realize this. This is going into her last fuck a few few years that she was going to live. She was. Uh, I think that was like the the, the misfits. And in the movie, she was contracted to do when she died. So Misfits may have been the last movie, feature-length movie she ever finished up. And did, uh, did Victor share with you what she was like that night uh, when she sang Happy Birthday to JFK that night in May when he took those pictures? Well, this is what he told me. You know, you have to realize he, there was a rehearsal the day before, and she came in with a, a scarf over her head, horn-wearing glasses in order to hide her identity. But he said that it was very obvious. And I think one of the pictures, if you've seen the images I have, Rich, one of the pictures is of that day. where she's, yes. she's got the scarf over her head and horn-wearing glasses. Now, yes, I recall that. On a good day, you're not going to know, notice a woman like, you're not going to notice Marilyn Monroe walking in New York City, are you? you know? And he said mm-hmm. that she walked in the Madison Square Garden during the rehearsal, and he immediately knew that it was Marilyn. He himself, he said, and he said he started to shake. So as a result, in the first half a dozen or so images he took, he said were un- unusable because he was shaking so bad from being that close to that, the alleged of that nature that uh, he, he couldn't hold the camera still. <laughs> 
so, uh, you know, and, and I can understand, I could put myself in this place. I, I, I used to be a photographer myself, and sometimes some things are so so astounding and stunning that you, it, when you first start to shoot, you do shake. And so you get used to being in the area that you're around. I, I used to shoot a lot of things that used to, like, uh, you know, really excite me. And, and one of the things I used to have trouble with was holding the camera still for the first couple of minutes. You know, another thing is loading and unloading the film back in the old days, you know, in the 90s for digital camera. You know, so I can imagine. And here's Victor. He's, like, 21 years old. He's fresh out of the Army, you know, and he hasn't been out of the Army that long. He's just started his career as a Broadway, you know, chorus boy. And here he is among some of the biggest stars of the, the, the 19, you know, 60s, 1950s. Probably the yeah. biggest stars. He was surrounded by the biggest stars in the, in the country, in the world at the time. And here comes Marilyn Monroe. And here, he's just a kid. You know, this match all his magic when he's 21 years old. You know, say, uh, you know, some of, one of the more glamorous stars where era comes in. We're in the room, and it's our job to take the picture. I, I think I would have a little time adjusting that to, to adjusting that too. And when you're around somebody of that sort of beauty, it, it's, it takes a little bit of time to get used to. You know, I've had friends that have worked for Playboy and and modeled and been in their films and stuff. And you know, one woman down down here in Florida is a really good friend of mine that's from Maryland, and we we knew each other up there and. We've become, you know, really good friends when I moved down here years ago. And she's a stunning, beautiful woman. And in the beginning of, you know, your friendship, it's very, for a little while, it's a little hard to get adjusted. And it's also hard to get adjusted to the attention that a woman like that generates. And uh, mm-hmm. I do that with uh, my friend Cindy. Uh, we used to do the bike, the bike Week, Daytona Bike Week, Miss Bike Week uh, contest. And, and it, it's like, there is a swarm of males that won't even let you have any space at all. There's just something about a, a woman that's stunning that that uh, you know causes triggers something, and and I guess men's hormones. Until you get used to being around it, you know, uh, the, people get out of hand. It is basically. I, I had a I had to throw a few elbows and threw punches around when I I, I took her out on you know uh, you know to the contest and and out on promotions and stuff. And that's because some people just can't, they can't get used to that, that sort of uh, overwhelming, beautiful, you know, presence. And I, I can uh, certainly understand that, you know, Miss Monroe must have been, you know, absolutely overwhelming to be in the presence, like two or three feet away from Marilyn Monroe must have been like absolutely, you know, almost uncontrollable, you know, <laughs> uh, kind of feeling. And I think Victor had that at the beginning, and then he settled down, and then he saw it as a job, and then he, and he did a great job. I, I think your research said he took 108 pictures that night, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. So that's quite a lot of pictures, and there was quite a lot of stars involved. So, uh, you know, um, you know, a couple of the early pins that you sent me had uh, Richard Burton and Liz Taylor uh, in them, and and Barbara Streisand. Yeah, these these are the kind of people that he just. He either worked for with, or you know, he was he was in Broadway musicals with some of the top talent of the time, and he either worked with them or because he was allowed, he was a trusted photographer. He got to take their picture. Now, you can imagine what cameras used to be like in those days. They used to have the great big round flashes, you know, with the aluminum like you know uh, looking holder for the the flash bulb. And, you know, you'd have a brownie with a great big flash bulb, you know, thing on it. 
and, you know, you're carrying it around. It's not like today where people are just snapping pictures with their little phones or their little digital cameras. You know, uh, carrying a camera around with a flash was a big thing, you know. And uh, it was it probably heavy, you know. It wasn't lightweight with the flash on. And, you know, you're running around and you're taking pictures of all these people. And, uh, you know, he was privileged a lot of things that a lot of people, you know, in this lifetime will never be privileged to. As a result, you know, they let him do the photography in, in the Broadway, you know, uh, air, uh, arena there in, in New York City. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he, he's uh, he's like, a, he's very old now. Uh, and I wanted to know if uh, Angie Fox was single. <laughs> he said he's looking for a wife. He said his last wife ran out of him and said he didn't make enough money. So <laughs> he's, he's kind of funny. He's a very, very entertaining person. He also has a joke book that he sold me. You know, I bought it just to, like, humor him, you know, no pun intended. I bought a joke book to humor him, you know. But, you know, he had a collection of jokes, and he wanted to sell me that book. He's always trying to sell you something. I get the impression that the poor guy's always in need of money. You know, he's kind of like, he's living in a condominium here in St. Pete Beach. It's nice, you know, but I, I get the impression that he's a little—he's living on Social Security and not too much more, and uh, he's a little strapped for money. And uh, unfortunately, you know, what, what I think is that, that uh, he made a lot of mistakes early on with the marketing and the images. Uh, he wasn't able to get it off the ground, and by doing that book, it didn't do him any, any good. Uh, the book basically... Uh, uh, is very unprofessional. He had a website called ScreenLegends.com. Uh, I believe it's it, it's 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 still an ex- he still owns the domain, but uh, there is no content on there. At one time, he had a lot of those thumbnails of the stars that he had taken pictures of, and it might be worth a look at to see if it's back up. But I don't think so. I think that he's under order from his estate to keep that, that website and those those images down. And I've seen some, you know, copies of them on Penn Interest, you know, some of the Barbara Streisands and, and uh, the, the Eddie Fishers and Jane Mansfield, I think he photographed her. Uh, you know, and the stuff floats around now because he put the, the stuff out on a website trying to market the book. So he made... Well, why would he not be able to show the pictures online? <laughs> that That's a choice that he's making. Now... Well, you know, and one of the reasons you wouldn't oh. want that is that people can download them and, and, and use them. You know, there's oh. oh. hard to, you know, enforce a copyright in the digital age right now. Yeah, And that's, that's why it was so important to me to get original pictures from his negatives initialed and signed with his photograph, his photography business stamp on the back of the, of the photograph. You know, because I realized that there's probably people that have copied his images over the, the years that, that don't have the copyright that I have. I, since I bought them directly from from Victor, I own I legally own the copyright to the seven images I bought. Right? And, you know, and I made an agreement with him, and I'll never break it, is that I'll never copy them. I, I won't put them on a copier, you know, a photocopier and copy them. Just, it, it's, uh, I'm a photographer... I respect the, the copyright issues that go along with your photography. In the digital age, it's very hard to enforce copyright restrictions on your content. And I was just reading the other day, uh, you know, people in the media are losing over a billion dollars a year to piracy. 
So it, it, you very easily see that, that it wasn't a good idea to put his images up on a website. You know, thank God he just usually kept it to a thumbnail. He didn't put the full image up. And uh, I believe, you know, and he's been very evasive about the whereabouts because what what I was originally interested, I wanted to buy all the negatives. I wanted to buy 108 negatives. I wanted to buy all the negatives. And uh, his story switched several times about where their whereabouts were. And when we had the meeting with the movie producer, the last thing he said is they're in a safe deposit box that is controlled by my nephews now. And I believe his, his family's estate is going to look, try to cash in on on uh, the work that he did uh, at that, that event in 1962. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is a great story. Uh, the movie producer didn't think there was enough there to make a full movie out of it. He said maybe a, a short or a documentary, you know, an A&E con thing, but, you know, mm-hmm. that wasn't going to be a movie made out of something. A, a single event like that, you know, and, and maybe it would be good for like a, a a TV movie or a TV, you know, or a Netflix show or something like that to that extent. But, uh, you know, the, the movie producer didn't feel like there's enough there for a 90 minute movie, you know, uh, his his experience uh, shooting the, 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 the Kennedy birthday. Mm-hmm. Richie wanted to speak about. Uh, some other upcoming events, if I'm not <clears throat> Absolutely. Monday is, as you know, in Cleveland, the Republican Convention. Weigh in on what uh, you see some of the uh, potential uh, uh, things happening there could be. Well, you know, I, I did some research today, and here's the, the number one thing to remember is that uh, the, the left, the liberal left, and, and some of this is being is documented, George Soros, is document is is financing to have protesters sent to the uh, Republican National Committee next week to protest Donald Trump's uh, presidency uh, run. Uh, it's a shame that a single individual with leftist ideas, such as George Soros, an evil man by anybody's uh, measure, uh, he uh, turned in his neighbors, his Jewish neighbors, into the Nazis and the Gestapo in exchange for food and part of their belongings when he was 14. He was known as a Juden rat, and he said he would do it all over again if he had to. So he sent his neighbors to the gas chambers and ovens of Auschwitz, and he went to probably one of the most wealthiest men in the world. Now he wants to muck in American politics, and I don't understand why. But he's intent on sending protesters. Uh, the Black Lives Movement is intent on protesting at the Trump. Trump presidency, uh, he's a presumptive nominee. Uh, I think, uh, barring any chicanery, he, he is my, I think his, uh, his vice president pick will, will be the Republican uh, candidates for presidents. Uh, in mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of Indiana, yeah. Excuse me? Could be. It's looking more and more like it's going to be Pence of Indiana. Right. And actually, it's official. If you look on Trump's page on Facebook, it's, it's, it's official. He he has vetted and chosen Michael Pence from Indiana's governor as his vice president vice presidential candidate. Now, uh, what uh, Black Lives Movement uh, caused a big stir in Louisville at a Trump rally not too long ago, and I, I'm a little bit lost as to why Donald Trump's message of hope and dreams for uh, Make America Great have to do anything with police shootings of black 
criminals. Uh, I'm 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 like stunned that they're even having an issue with it. And and in a lot of ways, I, I can't really understand why. Well, some of it, some of it, Dan, is is accidental timing. The the uh, Henderson thing last year, and and all of the recent. Uh, uh, police shootings of, of, of unarmed black men uh, around the nation. All of it's just sort of coming to a head at the same time. I think, I think it's more an accidental uh, coinciding of, of events that clash than anything, perhaps, in part at least. Uh, not to say there are not some organized uh, forces that are deliberately being sent in, you know, to try to disrupt uh, uh, the Trump rallies and what have you, and I'm sure we'll see a lot of that. Now, there is going to be a heavy police presence. As you know, there in Cleveland, they have about 4,000 uh, police dedicated to trying to uh, contain anything that might uh, break loose. Well, you know what uh, is uh, interesting about Ohio is what's called open carry state, that outside mm-hmm. of the, the secure zone that will be around the convention hall, you, anybody, and anyone can carry a loaded weapon openly. And that, that goes for, if you illegally own an AK-47 or any submachine gun, you can definitely hang out with it, basically. That there's no law in Ohio that will prevent that. And that's not illegal. So the police are going to have their hands filled because you're going to have, if you have people, you have people like the Black Panthers and the Black Lives Movement coming in with armed with, automatic weapons, and there is no law to arrest them just for displaying the weapons, You, uh, I can only imagine what kind of chaos could ensue from just that fact alone. You know, how are you going to tell if this person is going to use a weapon or not if it's totally legal to hang out outside of the secure zone with any kind of weapon that you can carry? Well, without being too doom and gloom, uh, without being too much of a doomsday prophet, uh, I had a long conversation with a, a black man from Oakland, California yesterday. Uh, he's been around for quite a while and he remembers Watts and he remembers the LA riots in 92 and he is on the pulse beat of what's going on nationwide. In fact, he has relatives still out there in, in the Los Angeles area as well as in other parts of the country. And quite frankly, his assessment is after the five policemen were shot in Dallas, he said that was a message. He said that's just the first thing that's happening. He said do not be surprised if there is something similar to the L.A. riot of 92 you're breaking out in Houston, Atlanta, or one or more of the other major cities sometime this summer. That is exactly the level of tension and hostility that exists. It would take very little to trigger it, and that's what he's saying. And he's somebody whose opinion I very definitely trust. He does have his finger on the pulse beat of this stuff, and I, I think he's absolutely right. You know, and uh, from what I understand, that the police in Cleveland are going to be very on guard because of the Dallas incident. The police in, in Cleveland are not going to, like, take much light. It's been written that they're, that uh, they're not taking anything too lightly at this time. They're going to be very, very much on high alert. They're very going to be very agitated. Uh, you know, police officers banned his brothers, and, you know, they see that this – I'm sure that the police officers in Cleveland see the, the killings in Dallas as, a, as an insult and a, an affront to them. 
so uh, it, it could get really nasty. Uh, I think it's going to be well contained. I think the federal government may have to step in at one point with armed soldiers, uh, you know, if it gets too bad. Uh, I think it's a shame that after eight years of having a man of color in the White House, that things aren't any better than they were in 1954 or during the riots in Selma and Mississippi, that black people are no better off in their relationships with the police than they were in the 50s and 60s during the height of segregation. I think it's a criminal shame that Barack Obama has, instead of helping these people, have tried to stir up more animosity and more anti-police theory and more race, reverse racism, if you will, than he has tried to make sure these people have jobs, education, and a better life. And this is where the problem stems, that, that blacks can go from not being allowed to sit at use the same bathroom or sit at the same lunch counter to being in the white the, the president of the of the free world basically, the commander in chief of the entire free world, and they're no better off even with a black president in office. And there's something wrong with this picture if you ask me. Well, as you know, Americans nationwide right now are extremely dissatisfied. They are ready for change. Everyone is disturbed and alarmed about how the upper 1% and the big mega corporations just continue to get richer and richer while the average working guy continues to get screwed left and right. And there's even a book out that came out in the 70s, but it's still just as valid and relevant today. I was reading it, in fact, uh, The Screwing of the Average Man. And, you know, the corporation started uh, decades ago, and it's simply gotten worse. And the situation has simply gotten considerably worse. And, and people are fed up and tired with that. You know, they don't like the Bernie Madoff type situation. They don't like those bankers getting off scot-free with a slap on the wrist. They don't like the mortgage bubble in 2008. People are fed up, and they're tired of the elite, uh, privileged, uh, upper crust uh, continuing to get wealthier and wealthier while the average uh, man isn't getting anywhere. And Americans are fed up. And there's as much anger over over that type of, uh, economic uh, disparity as there is anything else. And, you know, you're right. And and the, the thing is that the the middle class, the, the white middle class, does their, shows their dissatisfaction through voting. You know, it seems like the, the, the black lower and middle class do their, display their, just, you know, how they feel, their dissatisfaction through violence. And this is where I think that we're a separate America, you know, the, the, uh, a middle-class plumber is not going to go out and destroy somebody else's motor vehicle and set something on fire because he's unhappy with the way the politics are going, you know, whereas the blacks will do something similar to that. And, you know, still the, they, 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 uh, they took up Baltimore last year. I mean, they just, you know, went raging over that. And they burned Baltimore. And they tend to burn their own homes. And, that, you know, and that's what happened with the Rodney King rises. They didn't do a lot of damage to the people they were mad at. They did damage to their own neighborhoods. And it's a shame. It's a shame that somebody in, in, this, in, in, the, in this greatest country in the world is not working with these people to give them 
an opportunity for a better life and, and another outlet other than violence. You know, the middle class whites are going to vote their dissatisfaction. There's no need for us to, you know, be violent. Or we have other people that are that are herded in the ghettos and Section 8, and they don't care about where they because it's not theirs. They didn't earn it, and they're going to burn it. If they don't have it. And, and in the remaining five minutes that we have, uh, what do you think is going to happen on the Republican convention floor? What do you see happening inside the convention? Well, I think there's going to be high enough security to keep highly vocal protesters They'll be ushered out very quickly, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and I think it'll go on as it's supposed to go on. It'll proceed like it's supposed to proceed. Do you feel that Trump will be able to solidify uh, Republican support within the Republican Party? Do you feel that that they will, he will go ahead and be able to gain the cooperation he needs to to go ahead and proceed with his campaign? Absolutely. Michael Pence was a great great pick. Uh, he's got the uh, approval of Paul Ryan, who I, doesn't have my approval, but. You know, here's the thing: is is that I think that there's a lot of, of fear. I think the career politician sees his time coming, and they don't like Trump for that because Trump's not a career politician. He's an outsider. He's not part of that elite that she spoke of. Although he's very wealthy, he's not an insider politically. If you understand what I'm saying, uh-huh. they don't like that because he wants to put an end to the the uh, the super PAC funded politician, the guy that has all the special interests, you know, that give him campaign money, and then when he gets in the office, then he does their bidding. He doesn't do the bidding of the, of the people of the United States. And he's going to, they see that as a threat to the old guard. And mm-hmm. he's going to usher in a new guard. He's going to usher in a new era, I believe. And that's what they're, it's only human to be afraid of change. And especially mm-hmm. if it involves taking away your cash cow, millions and millions of dollars from from political donors. You know that 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 give you money in order to get you an office, in order to make laws and regulations that benefit them and benefit them only. Uh, we have about three minutes left, and I want to return briefly to the original opening topic. I want to let everyone out there listening know you can uh, go on to YouTube and also on to uh, my Facebook groups as well to uh, to see this video of the uh, images that are up for sale that Dan has, the Marilyn Monroe images from the. Uh, Evening when she sang "Happy Birthday" to uh, President Kennedy. They're by Victor Hillu. They are initial. They are numbered. They are original, authentic autographs. Dan Patrick is offering them up for sale, and uh, the contact information is there in the YouTube video. But I'll also give it to you here. My email is gideon one three seven at live dot com. And Dan, if you would care to to leave an email or any kind of contact information where interested buyers can directly contact you, feel free to go ahead and do that. That's all right, Rich. You know, they, you can find me under Daniel Patrick on Facebook, but uh, otherwise, you know, the, the marketing is left to the video. I, I think I saw the video. I, I can't say enough about it. It's fantastic. Um, even if you, you're not interested in buying, take a look at it. It's just for, for historical purposes. You'll get a glimpse of what we have here. Uh, I, I can't, can't say enough about it. It was an outstanding video, and uh, I think everybody should treat themselves and take a look at these pictures. Dan, thank you for being our guest tonight, and I want to wish everyone out there a great evening. Good night. Thanks, Rich. All right, good night. Bye-bye. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woo a hand clapper, a high-fiver? 
I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.